Hello, and welcome to the SensiLab Creative AI Podcast, Episode 10. My name is John McCormack. I'm the Director of SensiLab, and joining me at the console today, physicist and PhD researcher, Nina Retchich. Hello, Nina. Hello. How are you? I'm pretty good. That's good. And also, we've got SensiLab app developer and deep learning expert, Dilpreet Singh. Hey, Dilpreet. Hey, John. How are you? Good, good. That's good. And we've actually got an expert in our midst rather than just the three of us <laughs> riffing on whatever we like. We've got Professor Mark Andrejevic. Have I, oh, sorry, did I pronounce that correctly? Or Close enough. Close <laughs> enough. That's what you say to everyone. Mark's Professor of Communications and Media Studies at the School of Media, Film and Journalism here at Monash Uni. And Mark studies the social and cultural implications of data mining, online monitoring and digital surveillance. So that might give you a clue as to what we're actually going to be talking about today. So our topic is what we've called surveillance AI. Just to contextualise the background a bit, I think one of the biggest, if not the biggest applications of AI technologies centres around surveillance or monitoring. So, you know, some obvious examples are things like facial recognition and due to the sophistication of neural networks, technologies like face detection are becoming commonplace around the world. Uh, China, for example, has used face recognition for racial profiling and for tracking and control of religious minorities. School children's facial expressions are monitored in class to ensure that they're paying attention and reports are given to their parents and the teacher if they're not. Don't know what the punishment is. If, if they don't. And there has been recent media reports of Australian academics developing face recognition algorithms that have been used directly by the Chinese government for such applications. And it's not just China. Governments and corporations everywhere are using AI technologies increasingly to identify, monitor and control the experiences of billions of people. And they're getting a lot better at it too. So I found a statistic about uh, face recognition, for example, in the last four years, on a database of 12 million portraits, the ability of face recognition has increased from a 4% error rate or mismatch to a 0.2%, 0.2% over a four-year period. And that was to 2018. So we can probably imagine by the end of this year, 2019, that it's going to be even better than that. And that's getting up to meet or exceed what a, any human is capable of doing. Mark, should we be worried? <laughs> <laughs> Great intro. <laughs> Yeah, I, I worry all the time. And um, I, I suppose in part, I build my career on worrying. So <laughs> I, I think the, the big answer is yes. And I, I suppose, you know, we could think of a number of reasons for why, you know, one of them has to do with the concentration and centralization of these forms of monitoring and surveillance. The other has to do, I suppose, with the automation, not just of surveillance, but the automation of response. So I think of automation uh, partaking in what might be called a kind of cascading logic. If when you can automate data collection, as we do through so many interactive devices and platforms, you generate so much data that it has to be made sense of in automated ways, right? You can't have people going mm. through all that data. Mm. There was an interesting example as, as an anecdote. Uh, somebody... Uh, at Columbia, I think it was, was developing uh, technology to try to figure out how to get humans to process uh, drone imagery faster because they were developing drones that could do high-resolution photography that would cover large geographic uh, areas. And that generated lots of images that then had to be processed in order to determine whether there was an anomaly or a potential threat. And the bottleneck in terms of using that information was the human processing. You, you know, you needed lots of people mm. <laughs> to go through it. And so he developed a system to try to get people to uh, be able to monitor that information faster. And it, he called it cortically coupled vision. And basically he put, uh, 
one of those systems that monitors electric activity on the brain, one of those caps that you wear. And he claimed what to be able to detect the viewer's response to an anomaly before the viewer consciously registered it, so that um, that anomaly detection would first, you know, create some kind of charge in the brain, and it would take some fraction of a second before the viewer would go, oh, wait, there's something there. And he wanted to capture that little gap. And he claimed that he could speed up the image processing four or five times by... This is crazy. <laughs> I've never, ever heard of this before. <laughs> Have you awesome. heard about it, Dobry? <laughs> not this. Not this example. Look no. up cortically coupled vision. I, um, oh I have heard of it. You have yeah. heard of it? Yeah. yeah. And the goal down the road, of course, was to be able to find some correlation between the images and the anomaly detection response that could then be fed into machines so you could subtract the human from that process. But the the broader point is humans slow down the process of making sense of all that data. So if you can get them out of the process and move to automated sense making, uh, that speeds up and allows you to make sense of all that information or use that huge amount of information that you're gathering. And then there's one more step, right? Once you automate sense making, it's a pretty short step to automating response. Mm. Uh, and that's concerning because we know that machines make mistakes. We know that they may not be reading things the way we're intending or thinking about how they're going to be read. And if you actually allow them to make decisions uh, based on that without having some kind of effective form of accountability, we could run into quite serious issues. I and mean, we can think of a whole range of things, you know, automated trading leading to fra- flash crashes. or uh, That has happened already. That has happened. Yeah, black shoals. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But, you know, what about when it comes to security decisions or, or safety decisions uh, and the, these machines are making errors? That's something to be concerned about. And so I think accountability is a concern. I think uh, allowing processes to move at a, at a pace that we're unable to keep track of is, is a concern. But also I think the power differential is a concern. You know, who's going to have access to these systems that mm. require huge amounts of data and huge amounts of processing power? Mm. So one question. You talked about automated responses. How far off do you think that actually is? Because it seems like people don't, like people aren't really comfortable with that idea. So do you feel like it's still a far way off? Even like, you know, like automated car, like automated driving. Self-driving cars. Yeah, self-driving cars haven't really been deployed properly. That's because they're technically... Yeah, that's what I mean. It's It's an engineering problem still. But but it's kind of like where there is this kind of room for error. At some point, nobody's going to want to implement something that could actually, you know, cause issues. I mean, I think it's really context dependent, right? Mm. So already there are all kinds of automated decisions being mm. made about what ads we see and what prices we receive and so on. You know, but when it comes to areas that we're rightly very concerned about, such as, I don't know, lethal autonomous weapons, for mm. example, right? That's something where I think there's going to be, you know, huge social pushback. Although there are people who are advocates for this technology. Uh, John Yu. Uh, who you may remember wrote the torture memo 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 for the for the George Bush George W Bush administration supporting torture he's an advocate for lethal autonomous weapons his claim is these are going to be more precise uh, and more you know rational than human warriors and so you won't have the types of atrocities that sometimes happen when you have humans so he's making this kind of a case the machine will be you know more cold calculating and rational there are all kinds of concerns. I am not supportive of that argument, but I just want to point out that there, there are people who are really making the case for that. A couple of episodes ago when we were talking about AI in the movies, I raised the Forbin Project. Do you know this film? No. From the, the... It's from the 70s. Uh-huh. It's exactly that scenario. <laughs> so the 
everyone's going to be bored because I outlined the scenario a few episodes ago, but basically the US builds this intelligent brain and it puts it in charge of all its nuclear weapons because it believes that it will eliminate human emotion in any decision-making process. And the uh, system is turned online, the president launches it, presses the button, and then they realise that Russia's built exactly the same kind of system. And the two systems ask to talk to each other and they start negotiating between them and then they hold the world to hostage because they realise that they can... They have all the power. They have all the power. <laughs> yeah, so it's, science fiction has explored it. Yes, I, I. There was also war games. <laughs> That's true. Yep. Yep. When the uh, the simulating the games uh, thought they were actually at war and uh, started to launch weapons. Yeah, I mean, I, I think science fiction has been pretty good at at laying out some of the ethical and political and social issues that we might be thinking about down the road. But I guess the difference is that we're you know we're not talking about a film fantasy. We're actually talking about the use of weapons potentially deployed anywhere in the world where a machine is in control of the decision-making process to a large extent, which is a pretty dangerous proposition. Yeah, it, it, what happens or what tends to happen in terms of the deployment of that type of military technology is that it, it tends to come home pretty quick. Mm. Um, so, you know, once you de develop it in militaristic terms, especially in an era in which policing is becoming increase, increasingly attentive to oh, the threat of terrorism, it becomes almost inevitable that policing gets militarized, which means that it starts to use some of these technologies that are, you know, I, I don't want to say that there's anything better about using them somewhere else, <laughs> uh, but often political entities that are using those technologies imagine that they can, you know, hold them for somewhere else that won't be their uh, citizens or their people, but it, it tends not to work that way. Once you start using those technologies, they, t they tend to come back. So... In the U.S., for example, you know, a lot of the military technology that was developed during the course of the Gulf Wars is, is now coming back to police departments who, you know, there's surplus equipment, they bring it back, they have these military vehicles, but also policing, they're starting to use drone technology. Uh, and there were some police departments a while back that were talking about using non-lethal forms of restraint uh, or uh, crowd control from drones uh, that's a pretty short step to doing automated forms of, of response. Mm. Um, and it, it really, you know, I, I, I'm guessing that from the position of authority, the push is going to be to go as far as you can until you reach the point that public uh, response is too negative. But I think, it, I think the boundaries will keep being pushed. Mm. And after a while, it becomes normalized mm. and then you can increment it without people really noticing. And then suddenly they look back 10 years and go, wow. We've, we've been accepting things now that we never would have believed we would have accepted 10 years ago. That's certainly been the case with surveillance, yeah. I think. Yeah. Dupree, you've got a, a good example of some, what appeared to be fairly benign, a helpful device that's now become a little bit more controversial. Do you want to tell us about that? It's a doorbell, right? Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is what started off as a doorbell. So this is the company Ring, um, which last year, I think mid last year, was bought by Amazon mm -hmm. um, for, I think, more than a billion dollars. But Ring sort of is this automated doorbell with a camera that you can install in front of your home and it will just, you know, when someone walks by, it will send your phone a notification saying, oh, look, someone's at your door. You get to see who it is and you can talk to them through the speaker. John has it. John has yeah, it. Yeah, full disclosure, I've got one. <laughs> yeah, John is part of the problem. Yeah. <laughs> But then they expanded into just general security cameras. So, you know, indoor security, outdoor security. 
But a week ago, um, I think Vice broke this story that showed that Ring has been partnering with local uh, local police and sort of cities to have them promote the Ring products. So they want private citizens of a city to sort of, you know, buy these so it, it makes the town essentially safer. But it's, you know, we've got police officers posing with like Ring boxes saying $100 off, click this link. Um and, you know, Jesus. make your home safe. And it turns out that all this footage that's recorded by private citizens can then be requested by the same um, law enforcement to sort of, if something happens in that, something an incident happens in that neighborhood, they can sort of request access to that footage. Request being a nice <laughs> word there. It might be a demand. Yeah. But also Amazon is getting all this footage, which is subsidized by the city, through private citizens, which seems like a private surveillance network. Now, not only does the government have it, <laughs> yeah. Amazon also has it, which seems very sinister. They do listen in on Alexa. We do know that yeah. now. Yeah, but and now. it's not like the other, like, you know, big four. No, don't it's not like nobody listens in. Well, not, I don't mean, mean like listening audio, but just behaviours and stuff. Well, but but video is, is it's a step up, mm. right? Uh yeah, is it? I feel like it is. I think once you put a device in your home and it starts listening to you, that's you've crossed the threshold there. And if it's video, yeah, okay, I guess there's more. I mean, people people often cover up the cameras on their on their laptops or their phones for privacy reasons, but they never cover the microphone. microphone. Yeah, that's a classic example. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's not only you. You're monitoring anyone who's passing by your house. Right. Yeah. It's it's suspect behavior happening around you, and you might think that's like something you're doing for yourself. Oh, I'm protecting my home, but it, there's there's broader implications here. You're helping surveil mm. for these companies. This imperative is a security imperative, has a reasonably lengthy uh, history, and um, it's something that I think we're going to see continuing to be built out. Gus Hunt, who was the former technical director of the CIA, famously said at a, at a security presentation, our goal, and he, and he was using Google as his reference point, you know, our goal, inspired by Google, is to collect everything and hold on to it forever. And you can see why, from a security perspective, that could be a compelling fantasy, right? You know, this idea, like, if only we had the video, if only we had the audio, if only we had that data, yeah. um, you know, we could protect people, solve these crimes, you know, you know, this kind of uncertainty that comes with the vagaries of the social, having to trust the evidence of people or having to rely on people's recollections or having gaps in what people know about what happened. And if you could fill that in somehow, you know, then, mm. then somehow it feels like everything would be more secure. I think that's an illusory fantasy. You, you, you can never fill that in, but... You can understand that that impulse. You know, some of the recent news that I've been following has to do with the development of uh, security cameras that are floated by balloons. Yes. That can, did you see this? Yes. That can capture, you know, everything that happens in a in a city over the course of the day. And then what's what they like about this idea is they call it like. I think it was said, you know, TiVo for security or something. TiVo is a, a digital video recorder that allows you to, you know... Time shift. Time uh, shift. Yeah. That, that you'll be able to take a city and go, oh, you know, we heard there was a report that something happened here last night. We can rewind back to that, you know, that neighborhood at that night and see what's going on. And then, you know, if we see an incident happen in a car leave, we can, we can fast forward to see where that car went. 
but this idea that if you have a searchable archive, um, you can move back and forth in time and, and reconstruct what happened. But, but the ambition is collect everything and hold on to it forever. So now they're posing this as like, oh, this is more reactive, right? If an incident, incident happens, we will request footage. At what point does that shift to like, we can predict that an incident is about to happen. It's that, mm. you know, again, you know, automated response, that's where it gets a bit, mm. well, do you really know that person is about to commit something before you put them in jail? Like that's well, that, that was the subject of Minority Report, the film oh, too, right? right? Uh, yeah, yeah. predicted people before they were yeah, about yeah. to commit a crime. The, yeah. But, and it's also being instantiated in these predictive policing programs that are cropping up across the country. Mm. Um, so, you know, we can use enough data uh, if we have enough data, we can figure out based on some type of model where mm. a crime is going to occur. And the rhetoric of that has been very much like Minority Report. You know, there was a there was an article about the they pioneered this uh, predictive policing program called Predpol in Santa Cruz, California. And one of the news articles that got a lot of circulation was the police showing up based on the guidance given to them by Predpol to a parking structure where people were just about to break into a car. But that, that notion of preempting in the nick of time as you point out, is is really built into these forms of automated response. Mm. It's also built into, if you think about the military context, um, the U.S. military conducts drone strikes based on data profiles, yeah. right? So uh, they call those signature strikes as opposed to identity strike. An identity strike is we have a known target. Um, we're going to try to get them. A signature strike is we don't know who this is, but the behavior is indicative of what we consider to be insurgent activity. So we strike. That's a quite dramatic reconfiguration of warfare. It's it's kind of saying you're not actually in the process of combat now, but we think you will be, and uh, based on that, uh, we'll preempt. So we're already having seeing some of the violent ways in which preemption can operate. Sorry, yes. that's getting pretty, <laughs> yeah, pretty intense. Quite serious. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, speaking of serious, we we were um, before we started recording, we were talking about the recent um, mass gun shootings in the U.S. that have just happened as we're recording. This And, of course, you know, the immediate reaction on Twitter is for people to post statistics about how much more they happen in the U.S. But the response from within the U.S. is really quite interesting, isn't it, in terms of the way people consider the best way to deal with that problem? Yeah, you're right. The The political response is, is so obdurate. They will not change. Mm. And it's hard to imagine, you know, what beyond what's happening, what will actually mobilize uh, some type of political response. And, and this is where you see the way in which the fantasies of information collection and surveillance can be used in some sense to supplant politics. Uh, you know, the type of solution that the rest of the world thinks when they look to the U.S. is, why don't you politicians do something? Regulate guns, mm -hmm. get them off the street. Mm. But the response in the US, I suspect, maybe it reached the point where you see political response, but I think we're going to see more and more technological responses. And I'd, I'd mentioned to you that I've already seen these startup companies that are marketing themselves to schools and churches and shopping malls, the places where we see these mass shootings taking place. And what they're developing is cameras that have image classification and smart camera rec you know, recognition features. And they claim that they can train these cameras to recognize potential threats. They can recognize objects like guns being carried by somebody, but they also claim to be able to recognize threatening behavior, threatening patterns of activity. And I suspect because of 
America's tendency to try to use technological solutions to address political problems, mm. we're going to see this uh, this idea of, oh, okay, we won't do gun control. Instead, we'll just have hyper-surveillance everywhere with these uh, systems that can recognize threats and issue warnings and perhaps down the road engage in forms of preemptive response. That's That's quite a science fiction dystopian future as well, the machine that kind of identifies somebody as a threat and, you know, finds ways to stop them. Okay, it's good to stop threats, but how do we know it's going to get it right? Mm. I mean, it's not just in the US you're seeing that. I mean, even in our little neck of the woods here at Monash, I noticed there was a bulletin oh. that came around about, uh, it was. It seemed very benign, but they said they were upgrading the security cameras to add automated what? enhancements. What? Yeah. Them, which I presume is, is a euphemism for facial, facial recognition. <laughs> yeah, everybody's doing it. Yeah. Wow. So we're all getting face recognised potentially just by walking around the building That's that we're in. I wonder what they're going to be using it for or what their, what their purpose. Well, it's exactly that. The point that Mark makes, I think it's Threat. countering threats before they happen. If there's somebody who doesn't pop up on the database as being a staff or a student member. Or they detect a student yeah. who hasn't shown up to lectures. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. could be. Automated or a professor running late. <laughs> or yeah. a professor running late. Yeah, pay doctor or exactly. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it is crazy how these things are becoming so accessible as well. Uh, the Times did a little experiment where they built their own little facial recognition tool with completely just, you know, non-technical solutions. So, you know, I a bunch that. of, they bought a camera, put it at a restaurant, recorded, I think, 48 hours footage of Bryant Park in New York, used a off-the-shelf facial detection program, and then used another one to compare the detected faces with photos of people who worked around the neighborhood, which they got from company websites. And they managed to pick up, you know, employees who were just walking around the park and could just track them. And that was for under $100, I think they built that for. So it's pretty, you know, it might not be state of the art, but you can easily build something that that'll work as well. So, so what would people want to become surveillance experts? Would they want to do that themselves? Like, what, I mean, I mentioned you, if you, you know, for the usual reason that you used to hire private detectives, if your spouse is cheating on you, or if you're worried your neighbor's stealing your deliveries or something like that but no i don't think it, people would um amazon will do it for you right you, yeah. you buy your ring doorbell yeah you buy the ring doorbell and it's done for you yeah but it's also just it is not difficult if you wanted to do it mm. as well can we turn the conversation to speak rather than the obvious things like face recognition and those things where you know there's, there's an obvious monitoring to talk about the more kind of invisible monitoring that goes on through the way that you used your devices, through your behavior patterns in terms of your, the way that you use Netflix, the way you interact with all your digital services, about all that information that you're giving up for free. Is that actually probably even potentially more sinister than the more obvious things about police using face detection to try and counteract terrorism threats or criminals or whatever in the longer term? They're both very concerning. <laughs> <laughs> Which one's I, worse? I, I, that's a, that, that's you, a tough competition. Yeah. I, I, um, I was recently reading you know, some of the Google patents that have been coming out around their smart speakers. Mm. And those are fascinating because they're projecting into the future. You know, we were talking about, well, you know, what about video versus audio? But they're imagining, you know, once they get that outpost in your home, that it's going to be a scaffold for you know, a growing number of 
different types of sensors. And then they're trying to imagine, just in speculative terms, how those might be used. And that this gets to your point, you know, what type of sensors and what type of data can be collected. And it's fascinating. You know, they, they want to put vapor sensors uh, on it that will be able to detect, uh, presumably, I don't know, fire or steam. But to find out, you know, when you're cooking dinner and who knows, maybe they'll have, you know, spectrum analysis. They can see what you're cooking. <laughs> Amazon would love that. <laughs> we're, we're Whole Foods acquisition. Well, there's, there's such a rich marketing for that because you can see if people are eating healthily. So you can give them, you know, dietary books. You can give them, if they're not cooking at home much, you can target them for home delivery of takeaway yeah. food. You've, it's and, a gold mine. And, and once you have this combination of audio, visual, other forms of sensors, you can make all kinds of inferences. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned was health. I think that's going to become a huge mm. area for these folks. Mm. So one of the things they mentioned in the Google Home patent was they claimed that through detection of certain types of patterns of movement, they would be able to diagnose early onset Alzheimer's, for example. And their claim is we're in the home all the time. So we see you all the time in a way that a medical practitioner might not. So we're able to detect these signs way before you might and way before uh, even a trained practitioner might. And, you know, once they get into this um, making inferences about your health, your, uh, they have uh, of unsurprisingly emotion detection, mm. you know, decide, you know, see if you're smiling or laughing or crying, use that to infer your emotion. They want to have a kind of, you know, all encompassing uh, ability to read you. And it's not clear what all the uses are, although it's Google, so we can imagine many of them are commercial. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, the form that, that those commercial applications take you can speculate. I, you know, I think health is going to be a big one. Security is probably going to be a big one. Certainly marketing uh, and advertising are going to be big ones. What does that leave? I don't know. Not Education. Much. Yeah. yeah, not much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think also, you know, the, the policy of these companies is let's just collect all the data and work out what we can do with it later. So they just, they kind of rely yeah. on someone to come up with an idea and think, oh, hey, we could check that. We've got all this data. It's basically everything we want. And it's now just up to us to decide how we make use of it. I, one of the things in the Google patent that just struck me, and I, I can't quite figure out where it came from, but they imagine that you would have some type of a home central control system mm. that would be able to allow you to set priorities for your home and then see if those are being implemented. So, you know, are the kids cleaning the room would be one or something like, is the kid getting enough outdoor time or spending too much time on the device? But one of the ones that I found really striking, just the fact that they're thinking about this, was they would monitor your dinner table conversation and then compare you to other families with similar demographics wow. and, <laughs> and tell you if you're talking more or less and then give you prompts if you're not talking enough. Yes. Really? That but, was really in the... That's in the patent. What? Oh my God. <laughs> and you know, why? why? Why are they thinking about this? It's sort of this kind of global normalization of what constitutes acceptable behavior down to the level of conversation, like how many words you should say. Mm -hmm. How big they should be. How big they should You're be. You're an academic household. Yeah. <laughs> Bigger words. <It's, laughs> your kids won't understand you because you're talking too academically. To Yeah. I mean, to me, that, that does seem both very real, but also extremely dangerous in the longer term about what normalizes behavior. You're right. At and the most intimate, at the home, which is supposedly, you know, kind of intimate place where you're shielded from the rest of society in a way. It's private space where you can do what you want to do and perhaps more than you might do publicly. But if that space becomes a public space too, where, where are the private spaces that are left? And, and it's a really interesting kind of contradiction because on the one hand, we've been told, 
all of these data-driven systems allow us to kind of express our individuality, be who mm. we are. It's, you know, it's not like mass society. Customize Customized, individualized. But then, because, I, and again, I don't know why, but, but they have the capability to compare you. Their first instinct is to try to normalize everything. <laughs> you know, like, you're mm. not fitting there. Like everybody else does this. Mm. Why, are you, why mm. are you doing something different? You're an outlier. Yeah. You're an outlier. <laughs> yeah. And let you know. Yeah. So th those two tensions run in, uh, I think, opposite to each other. Mm. Mm. So I just want to ask a question for each of you. Do, so do you personally feel uncomfortable with the amount of surveillance happening in, on you uh, through your phone or whatever it is, or the fact that you don't really have any security with your data of like whatever apps you're using? Do you personally feel uncomfortable? I do. Yeah, yeah definitely. Does it trouble you? It troubles me. Yeah, I think it, but it, the reason why it troubles me is because I think even unconsciously it forces me to change my behavior because I know someone is, you know, if I go to a website I know someone is is knowing mm. that, so I often try and go to websites that I wouldn't normally go to just to confuse. The, you do that occasionally when I remember to do it, <laughs> but it's not not very often. But also, if you're on YouTube, for example, you watch a video on something, and then of course, you know, a million videos come up on the same topic. And if I'm spending the weekend just leisurely looking at whatever things that I'm interested in, and I see all these things, I think I I feel like I'm fitting into their Mm. the condition that they're accept they're, they're trying to push me into. Interesting. Yeah. Sorry to go on, but the, the big, the big thing about it, even in recommendation systems for cultural things like music and film and those kinds of things, if you're always given what you want, you'll never try anything different. You'll never try anything new. And it's kind of like, it's like being sugar fed. You're on this drip feed of perfect music you know all, the, all your entertainment is recommended for you and it knows you're going to like it and it could even be tailored to you so you never get the opportunity to experience things that you don't like and to have that contrast or to understand maybe i didn't like it when i first saw it but i might come around to it in days or years to come i might suddenly find that film that i hated at one point in my life i might mm. find that film to be really interesting and if i never got it recommended somehow my my cultural experiences become much more limited mm. You know, they're going to say all they need is more data about you in order yeah, to... Yeah, I, I know they're going to say like, that, but we'll I We'll see how he I changes it. over time. The, the, the BBC had an interesting... Uh, I saw some coverage a while back. They were thinking about this problem with respect to news coverage and, you know, concerns about the filter bubble or, you know, having your own preconceptions returned to you in the form of the news that you experience. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they suggested or were thinking about is developing an algorithm that would deliberately expose you to information that you wouldn't have mm -hmm. sought out on your own, right? But that, that's that's so interesting too. In order to know what you wouldn't have sought out on your, on your own... But then it becomes what more. you would have... Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. There's a paradox there. They, yeah. they keep trying to know more about you in order to surprise you in the way you, you want, want to be, be surprised. surprised. Yes, mm. exactly. Yeah. Oh my God. That yeah. is actually disturbing. When you, I was just more talking about like, do you feel uncomfortable knowing that like, because I think the way I see it, I don't know, maybe because I'm young, I don't know, maybe because I grew up a bit in it. You're, but, you're of the digital yeah. generation. Yeah. <laughs> I guess kind of. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like because everything is just, I don't know. I just don't feel like I don't feel like I'm being watched personally because I don't like I feel like everything is just aggregated and all of it seems so impersonal and I don't really like necessarily so you, so identify happy with, with my it? You, data. You, you, you don't mind? I'm not happy with it. I'm just kind of like I'm just wondering do other people find it like I know I know people who find it really, really disturbing and like stresses them out, you mm. know, or they want more privacy or they try to like, you know, find ways to get more privacy. But yeah. I don't know. Part of me is just like I feel so disconnected from the my like online, like whatever my digital virtual like data base of all how, my behaviors. Have, I, I don't but know. do you have a big digital footprint or not? Because that I'm could. I'm sure we all. I don't know. I Google all the time. 
Yeah. Okay. I mean, do I you think, mean like social media? Well, yeah. Like, do you? Because often pe- so much, people no. put a lot of information out yeah. about themselves, often when yeah, they're younger yeah. too, yeah, and then yeah, they yeah. come back and look. Oh, I did no, I, I don't. I never really did that. Yeah. So maybe you're a bit protected from. But it's still just like you know, getting tar- targeted ads. Like I just, I don't know. I don't really care. I don't, yeah, I don't mind getting targeted ads. To me, it's like I'm more concerned about what they recommend to me. Like to me, when I lift, so I see a popular YouTube video on Twitter. Mm. I'll open a incognito vi- window and watch the video in there because I don't want the YouTube algorithm thinking that I like that type of video and I want it to recommend me more of that. Like I'm so tuned into what the algorithm thinks mm. that I'll start liking mm. that I actively like what I don't want it to recommend. I'll like turn on a VPN and be like, look, don't recommend this to me, please. <laughs> like this mm. is a one off. It's a an outlier. Idea. But I use like DuckDuckGo. I use yeah, an inferior so annoying, search though. engine because I don't want Google being everywhere and knowing like entire search histories. Not that I'm personally concerned. I just, yeah, it's uncomfortable. It makes like, you uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's probably, you know, I've spent a fair amount of time, you know, teaching about or talking about these types of systems. And it's it's interesting to me how often we come back to advertising and that's because advertising is the model that seems to drive a lot of these. Mm. Um, But there's so many other realms in which uh, we might worry about what's taking place in, in, in terms of data collection. And I, you know, coming from the U S where I lived for a while, I remember thinking this is before the affordable care act uh, came in and you couldn't screen based on preexisting conditions, just anything that I did that would have health implications, what Mm. that might mean for my health insurance. Uh, You know, the idea that, yeah, yeah, this means like, uh, yeah, sorry, you you can't get insurance now, or, you know, we're going to discontinue insurance. They had a really interesting example in the U S it's kind of little, but striking to me. It turned out that some colleges were using software for their, when they made offers to applicants in the U S which is hyper competitive process very stressful that would monitor the the response to the accepted applicants emails or even before they're accepted to the uh, you know prospective student and they would check to see how long it took you uh, to open the email and to respond to it and to and whether or not you clicked on the links in the email and they were using that as a gauge of your interest in their institution so you know if you didn't click on the links or if you took a while to delay they'd think oh Mm. that person's not so interested and that would affect your chances of of admissions then and you know Maybe you were away. Maybe for some reason you got distracted. You got distracted, or, yeah. right? But a decision was being made based on this information that was collected that could have quite significant impact on on your life. And I think these are the realms that we. It's probably useful to pay more and more attention to things. So I had a I had a weird experience the other day, and I'm not arguing in favor of this, but I you know I was biking home, and um, I went through one of those automatic uh, you know red light stop, uh, red light uh, monitoring cameras to see if you run the red light uh, yeah. and I, I was going fast and it just flicked and I went through and it flashed me and I was on yeah. my bike yeah, mm. yeah. and I thought cool I'm on my bike <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm good yeah. but then I had this second thought of wait they've started to implement facial recognition in uh, in Melbourne like really? are they going to be able to, <laughs> to track Give me you down you need to have uh, a laser on your bike helmet to defeat yeah. the uh, but it, but it made me realize like those little moments of slack and I'm not mm. arguing for running red lights I'm against it that was not a good idea but you know that it just occurred to me, like all those moments of slack where you thought you weren't being seen, those are going to mm. disappear. Mm. Mm. And what might that mean down the road? I mean, good for me. Hopefully it'll stop me from running the red lights, which I shouldn't do. <laughs> but it, it has other implications for, mm. you know, you know, 
when you're walking down the street, I don't know, you go into a particular health clinic, you know, what, what does that mean about you? Who has that data? What can they do with that data? Those are the areas that I, that kind well, of the amazing thing is a lot of like, for example, health clinics have surveillance cameras, mm. they're IP based and most of them have default passwords on them or no password mm. at all. So it's possible for anybody really just to, yeah, yeah I've seen lots of really interesting artworks where people have, there's a, there's, there is actually a large database of um, surveillance cameras that you can access without a password or where the password is the default password, and that's quite commonly known. Oh, yeah, I saw that for the baby monitoring yeah. systems. Yeah, um, and yeah. the the amount of stuff that, it, it's phenomenal. So there's people sitting in 7-Elevens, you know, waiting, serving someone. There's people waiting in clinics to see a doctor. There's just baby monitors. There's ev- everything you can imagine. You could make movies out of the whole you know, yeah. you could have some sort of algorithm that generated a movie based on surveillance cameras that would probably make a lot of sense. That's interesting. It's like a, you know, Jim Jarmusch's Night on Earth or something. Is yeah. <laughs> Anyway, we're running out of time. So just to finish off, does anyone have any examples of where surveillance is positive? I was, I was going to ask that earlier, actually. Silence means no. <laughs> no I, I, I think there's so many contexts in, in which it's useful. I mean, I... I useful is um, not necessarily positive. positive. <laughs> <laughs> useful to um, whom? Yes. I don't know. There are probably forms of security monitoring that, that you know, we would feel are useful. So uh, do I understand listen. correctly that a lot of the statistics show that CCTV doesn't actually result in a significant increase in convictions? I, think, I could be wrong about that, but... The, yeah, the research that I've seen has been that CCTV tends to displace the types of activities that it's meant to thwart. So it do, it can move them, yeah. uh, but that the, the effects also tend to be short-lived. But so, you know, I, I suppose if you could imagine CCTV camera everywhere, <laughs> you could, then you would stop the displacement. Mm. Uh, and maybe that's one of the fantasies of, of total surveillance. But what are some other good, I, I don't know, what about... I don't know, in healthcare contexts where, you know, people are attached to um, monitoring systems and uh, then if something goes wrong with their vital signs, you know, immediately you have uh, an alert and you can go and care for them so you don't you don't miss out on somebody having a, a health episode. Mm. That seems like a useful, uh, sorry, a good, <laughs> a good use of, of monitoring technologies. Yeah, um, okay. Well, at least we came up with one. Yeah. <laughs> That's well, enough. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, we're out of time. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a really fascinating discussion. We should have gone on for longer. There's been so many interesting Yeah, but maybe things. we should have a part two. Yeah. We could have a part two. I feel like I have so much things. I'm up for it. Say. It's been a pleasure okay. yeah. speaking with you. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank, thank you, you, Nina. Thank you. Thank you, Dupree. Thank you. And join us for the next Creative AI podcast in two weeks. We're going to talk about art or not, I think, yes. aren't we? Yeah, which we're going to talk about to the BBC now. Woo. Yeah. Good luck, guys. All right. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.